0: Well, I wanna welcome you again. My name is Luke. I am also one of the pastors here. This was a big week for Capital Kids, which is the name of our kids' ministry. Uh, Small church right now as we're getting started, and we don't have a ton of kids in Capital Kids, but we have added an amazing percentage. We went from two to three this week. Um, That is Kyle's wife. Kyle was just leading here. They just had their second uh, William here this week, and then there's their daughter, Rosie. So we went from two to three. Uh, so worthy of celebration is the growth of Capital Kids. Uh, little by little, we're, we're adding to the family. Now, when you came in, um, on your chair was something that looks exactly like this. I want to give you a little bit of a tour and explanation of why that is. What you have in your hand here is called a connect card. Now, what we know is that people come in here with different stories, different backgrounds, different needs, with all kinds of even different expectations of a church. And so we know the pathway forward for you as we as a church seek to love and to serve our city, Uh, we know that the pathway forward is not a one size fits all type of pathway. And so the connect card is our way of getting information from you that would allow us to serve you better. So this is not uh, something where we get your information and then we use it in super tricky and sly ways. This is us just wanting from you uh, information that we could best love and serve you on your pathway forward as you're coming from all different places and even seeking all kinds of different things. So if you fill out the Connect card, that's the big QR code on the front. Um, that's, that's the purpose for that. If you wanna fill that out, that is great. If you don't, that is okay too. But just so you know, we understand uh, following forward, uh, even following Jesus, questions you might have, that's not a one-size-fits-all type of path, journey, and story. And so the Connect card is our way to help you journey forward so you can help us do that. Um, on the back side of this card, you'll find a lot of information about the main things that we do. We as a church, are committed to a few small things and doing a few small things as good as we can and not a whole bunch of things in a mediocre way. And so what you'll find on the back is an explanation of a lot of things that would give you information about who we are as a church and what we do. I wanna highlight one of those things and there's a different QR code on the back that would allow you to kinda journey forward in any of those areas. One of the things I wanna highlight uh, is called City Groups. City Groups for us is the driving force of community in our church. Now, if you're a student, there's there's a whole pathway for you in Salt Company, which is the name of our college ministry. If you're not a student, City Groups uh, are a place where even a church this size, you can come to a place where you feel like you have genuine relationship and people to journey forward in life with. That is the drive of what City Group is. If that's interesting to you, you wanna get connected, again, that QR code on the back, you can click on a link tree that says join a city group and we can journey forward with you as a church. Uh, Now, I wanna transition and talk a little bit about our five values as a church. Here's why I wanna do this, because I just wanna put for us as a church like cards on the table What do we value? Because as you start attending our gatherings here on a weekend, you're going to see these lanes drip into anything and everything that we do. And so I want to bring you up to speed on why we do what we do. Why do we talk about what we do? And where's the direction that we're heading overall here as a church? Uh, We have five values. The first is the gospel. Here's something we say about it. We believe that Jesus, who he is and what he has done for sinful people is the greatest news in the world. So we value promoting and propelling that message. In other words, everything we do as a church will be because we we have a message of grace from Jesus that we just wanna press into the world as much as possible. We want other people to taste the grace that we have. So the songs we sing, the things we say from here As you get down into it, all of it will be to promote and to propel the message of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Secondly, neighboring is a value. Here's what we say, we believe that all people are made by God and loved by God. So we value leveraging our lives for the good of the people in our neighborhoods, workplaces, and wherever we do life. We are here for the good of Columbus. We are here for the good of Ohio State, and neighboring is a big value of ours. We want to be people that allow this city to only flourish the longer we're here. We're not trying to start a church that ends with us or quickly fades. I do believe that I'm, I'm not really concerned about this organization. Like all good things, probably come to an end at some point. If it's man made, it probably at some point should die. I hope that is long after I'm dead. I want to plant something here that far outlasts us and takes the gospel to the ends of the earth from here long, long, long after I'm here. Neighboring is one of the ways to do that. Third, becoming is what we say. Here's what we say about it. We believe that the pathway to a flourishing life is becoming more like Jesus. You're gonna hear that a lot. In fact, even this morning, we're gonna talk about some words of Jesus that are propelling his listeners to become more like him. Why would I wanna do that? Because we believe becoming like Jesus is the pathway to a flourishing life. So we value the process of spiritual development. We want you to become more like Jesus, not because we want you to act more Christian or because we want you to feel like you are a follower of Jesus, but because we actually believe the pathway to the blessed life for you is becoming more like him. That everything you actually desire in your soul is a result of becoming more and more like Jesus. So we value Becoming fourth, we value the next generation. Here's what we say we believe that the university campus is one of the most strategic places for gospel ministry in the world, so we value reaching students through the Salt Company. We have started a college ministry at the same time that we started a church, both of those launched the end of August this year. And we value students. I don't know if you're familiar, across the street uh, is a university, it's called The. Ohio State University. We love Ohio State, and we love Ohio State students. We value that. In fact, one of the things I've said to our church is we would literally cut. If, if it came down to a budget thing, we would cut everything in our church before we cut Salt Company. One of the main reasons we've planted here in Columbus is because we love students. We wouldn't be here if Ohio State wasn't here. We value the next generation, and fifth, We value multiplication. Here's what we say. We believe in God's mission to forward the gospel to the ends of the earth, so we value reaching, training, and sending leaders beyond Columbus. One of the things that you could feel in here is that what we're trying to do as a church does not just happen within these four walls or even within Columbus. We actually value the message of Jesus going to the ends of the earth, so sometimes There's gonna be people here that are teaching. Sometimes we're gonna have other people leading music because we value the process of people being developed and actually sending people beyond our doors to other places in the world. One of the things, if you're around the Ohio State football team at all, uh, you're gonna hear this like developed here branding and mentality. In fact, if you go to an Ohio State football game They're gonna play before every game, all of their former players who were drafted in the last like, I don't know, 10, 15 years. They're gonna play a video of their name getting called, they're gonna play highlights of them as a player and them as a pro. Here's what they're trying to train us as fans, that you can come to Ohio State as a football player, you're gonna be developed, and if you wanna get to the next level, this is a good place to be. I think it's a genius recruiting strategy and I'm thankful for it because we've got a pretty beast football team here locally. Developed here. You're gonna see that a lot. What we want this church to be is also a place that you could be developed and sent. You could be developed here of Jesus, become like Jesus and take that message far beyond Columbus. We want to multiply this. Go to other places in Ohio, other places in our country, other places in the world. In fact, our college ministry, the Saul Company, is taking a trip overseas to do just that this summer going to Japan to do just this. The reason is because we value multiplication. Our greatest goal is not to just create something here in Columbus, but to create something here in Columbus that would impact the world beyond these walls. We call that multiplication. Now, as a church, we say our mission is we exist to lead more people to be more like Jesus. That's mainly addressing two different phases. The first one, is we want more people to understand and experience the grace of Jesus. As you look around here, you're not gonna find somebody that doesn't fall hilariously short of the standard of God. We've talked about that for weeks. Nobody who touches a mic, nobody who volunteers in any of our spaces is anything but broken. Some of us have experienced the grace that Jesus has provided for us, and we want more and more and more people to taste the grace we've tasted in Jesus. There's also another lane in that we want people to become more like him. Not because that's some of our mission, but because that's the mission of Jesus. And we believe that the more you become like him, the more you step forward into a flourishing and blessed life. Now this morning, we're gonna be talking a lot about that back half of our mission. What Jesus is gonna do in the text here this morning is he's gonna propel his listeners to become more like him in a very controversial area. So if you have a Bible, this is a great time to grab it. Turn to Matthew chapter five. If you have a phone and wanna pull that out, that's great as well, any type of device. Uh, Matthew is in the back third of your Bible. If you want a Bible, don't have a Bible, we have some for you on the table. You can grab one on your way out. Um, Obviously, that is free. We wanna just provide you that if you want it. Matthew chapter five, I I also feel like saying this. Um, We've been in Matthew five for four weeks, don't panic. Uh, This will start to pick up some pace. We're not gonna be just like slowly slogging our way through here. Uh, We will pick up pace, but this is the last week we're in Matthew chapter five. Now. Uh, I mentioned our uh, capital kids is mainly two kids. I have a one and a half year old, his name is Brooks. Uh, Kyle and his wife Katie have a two year old named Rosie, we just added Will, it's, it's growing. Um, we have this thing in our house, I, I believe it's called a nose Frida, which I'm pretty sure that's the name of it. What, what happens is we, uh, our one and a half year old, he gets a stuffy nose, his nose starts to run, he doesn't have an ability to blow his nose yet, he doesn't get that concept. The Nose Frida was invented for you to stick something like in his nostril and you can like suck it out of his nose. Now this sounds disgusting and I thought it was disgusting at first as well, but there is like a block. Impossible would be the scenario where you would suck snot into your own mouth. That would not happen. The Nose Frida is designed so that you can clear a baby's nose of all kinds of congestion in a way that they can't. We've had to do that this fall for Brooks constantly. And the second he sees the nose Frida, he starts freaking out, crying, pointing at it, turning away, saying like, mama, dada, like somebody come and save me, I don't like the nose Frida. I think we address commands in the Bible much like Brooks addresses the nose Frida. Like I'm saying to him, I said to Shaylin this week, I wish he was old enough where he could understand that this is not gonna be an enjoyable experience for you, but in two seconds, you're gonna absolutely love that we have a nose for you. You're actually gonna be able to breathe. Brooke still sucks his thumb, and watching him with a clogged nose suck his thumb with his mouth open is a shocking event. It's like, buddy, I wanna help you. I wanna help you. God puts things in the scripture because he's calling us into life And many of us, we see it and we say, I don't know, I don't know, that's a bummer, that doesn't seem fun. As we enter into commands in the text, every single one of the commands in your Bible is a calling into something better. It's a calling into something better. Commands are not an excuse or evidence for us that God hates fun. It's not an an opportunity for us to do everything we can to please him in hopes that if we just are very moral, he'll love us on the other side. That's not what commands are for. Commands are a calling into something better. The reason I start that, and, and we're gonna say that over and over and over, because I have a hard time waking up in the morning and believing that the commands of the Bible are actually calling me into something better because I wake up and want certain things and have a natural bend, certain directions that is not in alignment with the Bible. I need this reminder. Jesus in Matthew five is gonna give us a command and he's gonna give it to even a group of people to remind you, Jesus has thousands of people around him. They're compelled by King Jesus. They think King Jesus is here to militarily overthrow Rome. They think he's here to provide food for the poor and to heal those that are oppressed. And so they're like, man, sign me up for King Jesus. But he understands that the thousands of people around him are not really sure who he is. They don't really know what he's about. And so he starts to teach them. We call this in the Bible a Sermon on the Mount, Matthew five. Through seven and, and he's gonna give them a very controversial command, and it's even controversial here today. Look with me in verse 43 of Matthew 5. Here's what it says. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And, and here it is, verse 44. Here is the calling into something better. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. 45, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. In other words, God treats people who are far from him and close to him with grace. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. 2,000 years ago, when Jesus said these words, it felt upside down and it felt countercultural. And fast forward 2,000 years to today, that is still true. This still feels a little bit upside down. And Jesus, at times, has to describe and explain what he means. In fact, there's another part of your Bible that says, Jesus has said to people, love your neighbor, And it was followed with a valid question of like, who is my neighbor? And so he has to describe, who is your neighbor? Who are you supposed to love? He says, love your enemies. And so I think a great follow-up question is, who is my enemy? Who am I on the inside of and who's on the outside? Who am I supposed to be loving? What is Jesus pointing me towards? I think that's a great question. And I want to encourage all of us in the room that, It is apparently Jesus' opinion that you have enemies that you could call to mind. I want to encourage you to say he assumes that loving your enemy is going to hit the entire crowd, which means the entire crowd could pull a name and a face up. Who's your enemy? Be encouraged. Jesus assumes you have one, and then he's going to give you a command to call you into something better. Because loving your enemy is not what we wake up naturally desiring to do, but he wants us to get to the blessed life. I'm gonna give you two types of enemies. Uh, The first is what we would label like true enemies. Um, I watch a lot of 101 Dalmatians in my house at this point. Um, When I think of like enemies, I can't think beyond Cruella Deville, and the reason is because every character in 101 Dalmatians, Cruella's the, she's like the enemy of all of them, even Horace and Jasper. They're like supposed to be on her team, but she's really the enemy. Pongo and Purdy, definitely the enemy. Roger and Anita, the parents, definitely the enemy. You can think like the true sense of the word, somebody like Hitler that a lot of the world would say, no, no, that's an enemy. Maybe as you think of enemies, somebody who's bullied you or criticized you at some point in your life. You could think enemy, somebody on the opposite side of the political spectrum. Like we've been encouraged in so many different parts of our culture and our world to to be an insider of something and to see other people as an outsider of that thing, to gather into tribes. I'm this way, you're that way. You're on the opposing side, therefore you are an enemy. This is the true sense of the word enemy. And I know even in a room this size, it would not be difficult for some of you to pull up a name and a face into your mind when I say the word enemy. Somebody who's hurt you significantly, abused you. Somebody who's upset you, criticized you, disrespected you. Somebody who it's very easy to say, I'm here and they're there. True sense of the word. But Jesus doesn't just limit this to the purest sense of the word enemy. Well, I know for some of us it's easy to be able to pull that up. Like, okay, I, I have a name and a face. There are other of us in the room that it might be a little bit harder to generate who is my enemy. And so we have true enemies and we have what I wanna call temporary enemies. That that now this hits the whole entire room. Jesus is not just speaking to a small particular group of his listeners. He's saying, for for the thousands of people around him, this is gonna hit home. And knowing this is gonna be recorded and and. I mean, millions, hundreds of millions of people are going to have access to a Bible. They're going to read this. How does enemy hit home? There are things as temporary enemies. Temporary enemies are people that they don't fit into the pure definition, but in moments, they become enemies. They do something that frustrates us. They do something that makes us angry, that hurts us, that upsets us. They can be anybody at any time. It could be the people you're closest to or the boss that makes decisions that affect you. Jesus doesn't just want the calling into something better to be for people who have significant trauma in their story, significant enemies on the other side. He wants the calling into something better to be for all of us. This could be your spouse when they do the thing you've talked about not doing. Could be your kid when they spill on the furniture, your roommate when they get too involved in your business, your boss who criticizes you, your friend who talked about you in a way that was really hurtful, your coworker who got the opportunity you didn't get, person who disrespects you, and on and on. We can go. If we have any level of relationship at all with somebody, we are going to have temporary moments where they feel a lot like enemies. And so the calling of Jesus remains on us. This is to love them, to do what we can to bless them. And he even gets specific into praying for them because it's better for you that you do this. For Jesus to say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that's controversial, but what he's doing is saying, this is actually better for you. It's better for you to do this. I know that forgiveness in particular situations seems totally beyond us. Like, I can't imagine forgiving somebody for what they've done. Loving enemies, it doesn't feel like it's ushering me into something better. It feels like I'm letting them get away with it. Feels like I'm letting them think that was okay or creating a situation where they won't have to pay for what they've done. I get those feelings. I get how easy it is to withhold forgiveness because you think they, they, don't, they don't deserve it, they've done significant things. I don't want them to think this is okay. I don't want them to get away, for, get away with it. But even scientific research here in 2021 has caught up to what Jesus says. Cards on the table. I believe when Jesus speaks, he's speaking as a creator of everything. So when Jesus says something, I believe that's fully true but we live in a world where science has actually caught up in its research to confirm the things that Jesus has said for 2,000 years. One of them is to love your enemies is actually a pathway to your freedom and life for you. I'll give you non-Christian science on this. Research Researchers at Erasmus University in the Netherlands, they did this thing I would love to watch. They had these students, they tested their vertical leap. Which, which made me think, we should do a combine here in the church 40 times, vertical leaps. They, they did this, just normal people. They tested their vertical leaps. They wrote it all down, marked it all down. Then they had all of these people write at length about a time they either extended forgiveness or withheld forgiveness. So they got them into a place where they recalled a story where they either gave forgiveness or withheld forgiveness Then they retested their vertical leap. The people who gave forgiveness on average jumped three inches higher than they previously had. Like there was a tangible burden lifted. Maybe that seems like a fluke and a gimmick, so let me keep going. Dr. Frank Minnerth and Paul Meyer, they did a a study on reasons for burnout in the professional world. Like why do people who work for a living get burnt out of good jobs and leave? That was the study they did. Coming in at number three was a stressful job or a job that you felt was beyond your reach. Like I can't do this very well, my job is super stressful and so I'm burnt out and I leave, that's number three. Number two was perfectionism or overworking. It's something you can accomplish, but you've gotten into a rhythm of overworking or having a standard for yourself that's not legitimate. So you continue to overwork and you burn yourself out. Number one is bitterness within the workplace. To me, that would not have been on top five. I wouldn't have created that in my mind, but having bitterness in your workplace will stir you up in a way where it will lead to you leaving good jobs professionally because you feel burnt out. Maybe that's not enough. Mayo Clinic has documented that forgiveness, even without it being seeked out by the abuser. Handing out forgiveness, whether they are seeking it, know their mistake or not, has physical effects that are positive. Here's what Mayo Clinic says. Forgiveness leads to healthier relationships, improved mental health, less anxiety, stress, and hostility, lower blood pressure, fewer symptoms of depression, stronger immune system, healthier heart, and an improved self-esteem. Non-Christians don't care about what Jesus has to say about loving your enemies. They're saying it is actually better for you that you love the people who are difficult in your world to love. That's actually good for you. The Bible tells you that. The world tells you that, and then Jesus takes it a step further to say, love your enemies, bless them in any way that you can, and to be specific, pray for those who persecute you. Prayer is a way for us to step into loving our enemies. I think a good question is, how are we gonna populate our prayers? Like when I have a temporary moment where I feel like, okay, that, that feels a lot like an enemy right there, What are the things Jesus wants me to pray? Now, this is not in your Bible, but it's an encouragement I have for you to populate your prayers. The first thing I would say is it is a big step to even use specific names in prayer. Like how do you populate a prayer to love your enemies? Jesus tells you to love them, to bless them, to pray for them. How do I populate that prayer? I think saying specific names is a great start because it will allow you to see people, not positions. It'll allow you to see futures, not failures. You're seeing human beings that are on the other side. I think starting with their names and my next encouragement is to pray something like change them or change me. One of us doesn't look much like Jesus right now. I'm pretty sure it's them, but I'm understanding in humility, it might be me. If we feel this, this like feelings of enemy come up in us, it is highly likely that you have a lot of evidence for why that person needs to change. I'm saying I, I agree with you, I understand that. It is possible that you have feelings of enemy not because they are wrong, but because you also have some shortcomings. I'll give you an example, like I'm criticized at work or at school. Somebody starts to feel like an enemy, you're throwing stones, that feels like an enemy. A prayer could be, God, would you change their critical spirit, or it could be, God, would you maybe make me more open to critique? Maybe they have reasons to criticize me. So I feel like they're an enemy. God, maybe make them less critical, but maybe, in humility, maybe there's things I need to change. I need to humble myself and say, I'm not perfect. There are things I can improve on. Here's another one. My, my, my spouse th- throws my past mistakes in my face in an argument. That will feel like an enemy, I can assure you that. And maybe the prayer for you is, God, would you allow my spouse to heal from the past mistakes that I've had? Or maybe it's, God, would you humble me to the point where I know that I don't always have to be right, I'm not always right, I need to be reminded that I am not 100% correct all the time. I've mentioned from this stage, me saying to Shaylin, my spouse, I was wrong, I made a mistake is difficult. So when we're in arguments and I feel like, hey, temporary enemy in front of me right now, you're saying things that's making me mad, you're saying things that are upsetting, that are hurtful, I can pray, God, would you change her? But God, if it's me that needs to be changed, would you also change me? This is how I would populate the prayers Jesus is calling us towards and Jesus himself isn't the type of guy who tells us to do things and to go places. He's unwilling to do and unwilling places for him to go. When Jesus says things like love your enemy, we don't have an ability to respond with a statement like, yeah, easy for you to say. Because for Jesus, it, it wasn't easy for him to say. I love the detail as, as we're gonna eventually get in this book where there's gonna be all kinds of details of, of who Jesus is and what he does and where he goes. He's eventually gonna be brought to a place where he's beaten, mocked, and killed. And the entire time, I love the detail of the Bible because the entire time this is happening to Jesus, we know that he could stop it at any moment. In fact, those closest to him at times stepped in to try to defend Jesus and he turned to him and say, like, like, stop it, you don't think I have control over the situation. Why are you whipping out a sword? If you're familiar with the story, he's got a guy who whips out a sword, apparently not very good. Swordsman, because he starts swinging that thing around and all he gets is an ear. Cuts somebody's ear off and Jesus turns around like, dude, what are you doing? You think I've lost control? I'm in full control. This is supposed to happen. Yet the details of the story tell us of a Jesus fully capable of stopping this at any moment, yet walking to the cross to die for the very people who are beating him, mocking him, and killing him. The story of Jesus is he around enemies who are hurting him, abusing him, and will murder him. He continues to walk forward in love. Loving your enemies is not easy for Jesus to say because he knows what's coming. He knows that he's gonna say that and then he's gonna have to be the example of that on the other side. And enemies is not a word I'm putting into Jesus's mouth. This is what God says of people like us. Here's what Romans 5 verse 9 says. While we were God's enemies. I'm not calling you an enemy. The Bible and God is calling you an enemy. Romans 5, 9. While we were God's enemies. We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. This is what we sing about that while I was on the opposite side of a holy, righteous, all-powerful, all-good, all-knowing God, I am not that. I'm on the opposite side. I'm on the rebellion side, the always-making-mistakes side that doesn't learn his lesson, the first-time side. That's who I am. While I'm on the opposite side of God, while I'm an enemy, Jesus steps into this place to reconcile our relationship with the Father. I'm an enemy, but because of Jesus, I'm brought in to be a child. This is the message, this is the message of Jesus. This is what we're trying to press into our city because we think it's good. We think there are enemies in our city, not because they're worse than any of us, but just because we're on the opposite side of who God is, we fall short of a standard. We need Jesus and his reconciliation to bring that relationship back, enemy to child. This is what Jesus did, this is not him saying, hey, love your enemies and I'm gonna dip. No, no, love your enemies and I'm gonna go example that is as clear and as compelling as anybody ever. But maybe, maybe the example of Jesus feels too beyond you. Like, yeah, I get Jesus can love his enemies, but I'm not Jesus, so how do I here in my world Love my enemies. I wanna tell you a story to close here about a 16-year-old Australian girl named Jackie Hamill. In 1992, this 16-year-old felt compelled by a military prison in the Philippines. She knew of these prisoners of war who, uh, in her estimation, were really far from God, and she felt like she's experienced the grace of Jesus as an enemy, and so she felt compelled by the need of this prison to hear about who Jesus is and what he's done for his enemies. So at 16 years old, she goes to the Philippines, she starts spending tons of time with these inmates. Almost all of these inmates were communist guerrillas who committed just atrocious tragedies against humanity. Like there's a reason they're prisoners of war and it's because of how they treated human beings in a wartime context, and she goes into this environment because she's compelled that I was an enemy far from God and by the grace of Jesus has been brought in to the family, and so she goes into this prison to propel that message. There's a day where she starts to hear commotion, she starts to hear what she thinks is rioting and gunshots starting to go off, and so she investigates, and she finds out that the inmates had taken weapons from the guards and have now taken over the prison. So for the next three days, they hold this 16-year-old girl hostage, and one after another, for about three days straight, she's passed from one inmate to the next, and they rape her for about three days straight. There's a growing military outside the the prison that's growing because they wanna keep these inmates in, and about three days in, they decide enough is enough, and so they enter into the prison. Gunshots are flying back and forth between military and inmates, and Jackie gets caught in the crossfire and she's shot and killed. Prisoner of war inmate recalls this story He says he he remembers seeing Jackie get shot and he goes over to her because he sees her talking and trying to communicate something. And so this inmate who had just raped her walks up to her on the ground and he hears her passionately praying for the soldiers and the inmates to experience the grace that she has experienced. He sets his gun down, he gives his life to Jesus and she dies there on the ground. For Jesus to say something like, hey Jackie, love your enemies, it would not have been difficult in those three days for Jackie to pull up names and faces of who's the enemy. Wouldn't have been difficult. Yet she dies the same way Jesus dies. Jesus from the cross says, Father, Forgive them. God, they don't understand what they're doing, and that's okay. I want grace for the people killing me. Jackie dies the same way. 16-year-old girl, 1992. God, please forgive them for the crimes they've committed against me, the crimes they've committed around the world, the mistakes, all of their shortcomings. Forgive them. This is how she populated her prayers when Jesus says, pray for those who persecute you. Now, I, I wanna say that and also add this. If you're in a, in a relationship that's abusive, if you're in a relationship where you're being assaulted, uh, the call of Jesus is not for you to just like remain there and love and bless the person who, you're, who, who is abusing you. That is not the call of Jesus. You need to get yourself to a safe place. You need to tell people about what's going on, get to a healthy place. But there is a point in your life where loving the person who's on the other side looks like doing what you can to bless them, what you can to pray for them, not because that's good for them, but because it's good for you person who harmed you will continue to harm you the longer you hold on to it? Why would we want to continue to let our abusers abuse us far after the abuse? Get to a healthy place if that's for you. But the call remains of Jesus. Love your enemies. Pray for those who are on the other side. Populate those prayers with names with stories, with a change them or change me. I'm open to both of those being true. I've been sitting on this a lot this week and I have found myself having many evidences of like, up oh, temporary enemy moment. In fact, last night I was, uh, I went with my father-in-law to the Blue Jackets hockey game and on my way home, I'm, I'm getting onto an on-ramp And it goes from one highway to the next. And so I'm going 70 miles an hour and I just stay going 70 miles an hour while I transition to this other highway. The the person in front of me gets in front of me and then they slow down to like 40 miles an hour while they're trying to merge. And I'm like, dude, this is not a stop sign. This is a, a merge. And I found myself like easily enemy, enemy moment. God changed them, teach them how to drive. Also, create in me patience. Found myself when I'm praying for my temporary enemies, very quickly what will come to mind is the ways I'm falling short. You know what's true? I should be able to go 40 once in a while. I'm impatient. And I only got to that conclusion was because I prayed for a temporary enemy. Populate your weak with prayers for those you see on the other side. They're not positions, they're people, they're not failures, they have futures. May this be a city, may we be a church that is good for our city because we love everybody around us. We start to lose the enemy title on the other side. No, no, they're not an enemy, they're a person. We were an enemy to God, yet he died for us. This is amazing, amazing news. And it's a way we can step into something better this week, loving those who we label enemies. We need to lose that label, bless them, and pray for them. Let me pray right now. God, I just wanna first like apologize for how often in my mind somebody can feel like an enemy. How I, how I don't feel like the imago Dei, made in your image, nature of so many people around me. God, allow me to, to value, to see worth and dignity, to even the people who would quickly feel like an enemy in my world. Allow me to see them the way you see them, to love what you love, to hate what you hate, yet to love people around me, to know how I can populate my prayers. Would you change me as I seek to love my enemies? Would you change us as a church? It's so easy in our world. So easy, God, for us to put people up into our minds and around us as enemies. Would you break down those walls? Would you allow us to love people, to pray for people? Would stories like Jesus's come to mind often? And stories like Jackie's give us hope and courage and confidence that we can do this. We love you so much. We thank you for who you are and what you've done for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray.